Take a seat. It's not an unusual thing when we are faced with difficulties in our lives to start having second thoughts and doubts about our actions, about our decisions. We start thinking, was my decision back there right or wrong? We, we look at the things that have happened leading up to the situation that we are in and we think, did I make a mistake back there? Was I in error or, I, were, or was I right? The believer, the Christian believer, can suffer because of wrong decisions. We can experience tribulation as a result of our ignorance, our foolishness, as a result of our disobedience, of our imprudence, and among uh, many other things. We, we sometimes suffer because of our own errors. And Peter, uh, the apostle, he writes in his letter, uh, in, chapter f in the first letter, chapter 4, verse 15, Let none suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody uh, in other people's matters. There is a sense that we can and do at times suffer because of our own mistakes. However, sufferings and affliction, trialing circumstances in the believer's life are not always due to some mistake. That's a very prosperity gospel kind of mentality. If something is going wrong, it's because there is some error, some sin in your life. That is not necessarily the truth. We often suffer as a result of our faithfulness to the Lord. In the context of, uh, that w of the passage that I just spoke from Peter, as Peter recommends that people will, would not suffer as murderers, as thieves, as <coughs> evildoers, He's talking about this kind of suffering. And he says to them, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for you, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. I would say this, I would even go as far as saying this, generally... Opposition, suffering that is brought upon us by uh, the world, generally speaking, is not because of the believer's faults. The wrath of men is not attracted because of our faults, but because of the virtues and the graces of God in the life of the Christian. And I think this is particularly clear in the greatest of all injustices. In, this, in the history of mankind, the suffering of our Lord Jesus. He was sentenced, trialed, sentenced, and put to death, not through some fault of his own, not because he, he, he made a mistake, but because of his faithfulness to the Father. And many Christians have experienced the same thing. Suffering, even martyrdom, because of God and because of faithfulness to his will. Now, my argument this morning, and I, I realize that there is uh, at least two different opinions with regards to this passage, is that Paul, Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem is an example of the latter of these two things, is an example of a Christian suffering because of his faithfulness to Christ. And therefore, this passage for us is an encouragement as we experience difficulties and tribulations in our lives because of obedience, in obedience to God's revealed will in Scripture. Scripture. 
It is for us to look at this passage and to understand that, yes, sometimes bitter providences will come the way of the believer. Just like the Lord Jesus encouraged the disciples, saying that he would be with them in all circumstances, even to the end. We sometimes are hated, and that's a circumstance. We are hated for his namesake, and we are persecuted just as he was, as he said. But nonetheless, we are promised to receive the crown of life in glory. So before we look at this passage, let me just quickly recap uh, the where we are, the context of the passage. Last week we studied the journey that Paul uh, and his companions made from Miletus all the way to Caesarea uh, as they make their way to Jerusalem. It is reported for us in chapter 21, verses 1 to verse 16. We saw how they made uh, stops in, in, uh, in coves and in ro- roads, and how they arrived at Patara, and from Patara they probably took a larger ship and they made the, uh, the, the, the high sea journey from Patara, South Turkey, uh, passing through Cyprus directly, all the way to Judea, or to Tyre in Phoenicia in this case. There they spent a week, a week with the believers, with the members of the local church, and from there they went from Tyre to to uh, Caesarea, uh, having spent one day in Ptolemy. In Caesarea, they stayed for, uh, for a few days as well, for several days, actually, in the house of Philip, the evangelist. And the focus of that, uh, of that section uh, is particularly uh, prevalent in the prophecies that happened both in, uh, in, in Tyre and in Caesarea, the prophecies that Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem. And, and, and the focus of the passage was as well in the, in the pleadings of the, of, of the believers in those places and of Paul's companions as well, for Paul not to go to Jerusalem, for Paul not to, to, to face this fate that was given to him. But Paul was adamant that this was what he was called to do. In fact, he goes on to say in uh, chapter 21, verse 13, that he's ready to be arrested, not only to be arrested, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And now we come to the passage uh, before us today. As Paul arrives in Jerusalem, from verse 17 to 36, Luke relates to us what happened to Paul when he actually arrived, when he finally arrived in Jerusalem. Today we will reflect on the reception of, the, of Paul by the leaders of the Jewish church and the report he gave to them about his missionary work, communion. We will uh, notice a concern, number two, regarding a difficulty that was presented to Paul by, by the brethren in Jerusalem regarding the, 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 the reports that they had been hearing from, from uh, overseas. Number three, we will see a compromise. And I will speak a little bit more about this. A compromise upon the suggestion that was made to him in order to avoid those reactions. And fourthly, we will see a consequence We'll look at the attack that Paul suffered in the temple, his imprisonment, his, his beating. So communion, concern, compromise, and a consequence. Firstly, communion. As Paul arrives in Jerusalem, his, him, him and his friend, uh, companions, his entourage, are received by the church leadership in Jerusalem. And we read, don't we, that it was quite cordial. In fact, it was, it was warm and welcoming. It, 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 we read there that they received him with gladness. 
There was gladness in the, heart, in the hearts of the Jewish leaders and of the Jewish brethren upon the, the, the arrival of Paul. There's this warm, effusive welcome. If you think about it, it makes sense. How many years have, there, uh, have passed since the last time that they saw Paul? It's been at least four years by now since his last visit. And the word brethren here in this verse must refer not only to the, uh, to the leaders, but perhaps to some believers. In fact, I, I believe that this con- the context in which this is happening is, is in, of a church service. And I say this because uh, later on Peter will say, see uh, the many myriads, the, literally in, in the Greek myriads, in the many thousands of Jews that believe. It, Peter is in, uh, uh, not Peter, James is inviting uh, Paul to look, which implies that there was some kind of gathering, that this was in this context of this, some kind of gathering, perhaps a Sunday service, we, a Lord's Day service, we don't know, but, but there is a sense that as he's received, it's, it's not just the, the, the Jewish, uh, the, the, the Jerusalem Christian leaders, but it's some other brethren as well. The Hebrew believers there. And the very next day, Paul and his entourage uh, meet with James, the elders of the church, um, to give a report. And, and I find it interesting that, that we see this progress in the, in, uh, in the book of Acts. It was not always the case that as you come to Jerusalem, you meet with the elders of the church. In fact, uh, when you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts, when the, the Christians took up an offering to help the needy, uh, they sold or they, they were selling their properties, rather, uh, to help those in need. What do we read there? Where do they bring the offering? They bring it and lay it at the, the, the apostles' feet. But not at this time. There is a sort, a sort of development that, that has happened over these 20 years. It's no longer the apostles who are there. This James is not James the Apostle. It's James the Lesser. It's known in history or in tradition as James the Lesser. It's a, he's the writer of the epistle. James the Apostle has uh, by now been uh, put to death at the edge of Herod's sword. But when the church is now meeting, it's no longer the apostles who are there. It's the elders. In Acts 4, we see this happening. In Acts 6, for instance, the apostles are there, but they are beginning to realize that, that, that this is not their calling. So they, they, they invite people to choose out from among them, men of faith, full of wisdom, to be deacons. In Acts 15... Paul, when he goes uh, to Jerusalem, he still meets with the apostles, but now he meets with the apostles and the elders, Acts 15. We read of the two there. So now we come to Acts 21, and the apostles are no longer there. And you may ask, where are the apostles? Well, they're doing what God has called them to do, to be apostles in, in foreign uh, places. They, they are gone. They're not dead yet. They're gone uh, Preaching all over the place. They're doing mission work. It's interesting just to note the the progression from the apostles being the leaders of the church, of the local church in Jerusalem, to them being together in Acts 15 with the, the elders. And by now they completely disappear from the scene. Rather, they, they, only the apostle Paul is mentioned in in the book of Acts, I want to get. I want to get to heaven to hear about all those other apostles' work in other places. But as usual, the apostle Paul presents to those present a detailed report of the progress of the kingdom of God among the Gentile lands in the provinces of Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia, and he. He tells them about the things that have been happening. One of the things that, that is important for us to note in particular this morning as we go through this passage is to note uh, who does the Apostle Paul attribute 
the positive outcomes of his ministry. Look at verse 19. In verse 19 we read, He told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It's always the case with Paul, isn't it? We've spoken much about his courage already, about his, his boldness, about his, his uh, staunch attitude of, of unwaveringness. But here is a display of another quality of the Apostle Paul, humility. He's a humble man. He knows that he has done nothing. He doesn't go to the, to the, to the church in Jerusalem and, 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 and say, look, I've done this. I've been to this place, and in this place we had 20 conversions, and in that place uh, we had uh, 30 rededications. In that place we, uh, I, I preached this, and, and, and I led so and so number, uh, such and such a number of people to the Lord. Uh, no, the Apostle Paul is adamant. He's just an instrument, a tool in God's hands. It is all God's doing. You see something of the measure of the humility of the Apostle Paul and something that we should learn in our own lives and in our own service to God. We do things, but we do them in the power and the might of God. So we boast not in the things that the Lord accomplishes. And it's not just the Apostle Paul, is it? The Apostle Peter, when he, he goes and visits Cornelius, and Cornelius and his family are wonderfully brought uh, in, into the kingdom, he goes back to Jerusalem. And what does he say? I, I brought Cornelius, I, I led Cornelius to, to the Lord. No, he says, the Lord has saved them. In fact, that was the, the theme of the rejoicing of the Jerusalem church. What? That, that, that Peter did some great work? No, that God had granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. That is the theme of the reports. Not only here in Acts 21, you go to Acts 14, Paul comes back from his first journey and he's, he's giving a report. And what is the report? That what God had done in, the, in those places. And what is the result when we do such a thing? Is that God is glorified. And that's what happened here. Verse, um, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They didn't go, wow, well done, Paul. Let's have a, 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 a Paul day uh, to celebrate every year now. You're the best missionary that the church has ever had. No, they don't do that. They realize both because Paul is adamant to emphasize it and because they understand correctly what's going on in the mission field, that it is all God's doing. That it is all God's doing. And I wish we had some missionaries here because sometimes when you read these mission reports, when you read these prayer newsletters, it often doesn't carry this same sense, does it? It's all about uh, presenting results. I would much rather to receive a prayer newsletter that instead of saying we, we, we have 50 people in our uh, midweek Bible study or in, in this event that we put up, I would much rather hear about the one person. Look, let me tell you about what God has been doing in so-and-so's life. That's the point of the ministry that we are given Neither Paul, nor Peter, nor any apostle ever pointed the spotlight of themselves. Oh, I led a Gentile to Christ. No, the apostle Peter didn't say that. He said, God did it. In fact, the apostle Peter, in, in chapter 4, verse 11 of his first letter, he says, let him... Speak as of the oracles of God. If any man ministers, let him do it as of the ability of which God gives him, that God in all things may be glorified. 
That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, I pray that you be filled with the fullness of God. That you would, you would exceeding, that exceeds all that you can ask or think that does things and works in us. So what? That's what happened. They pointed the spotlight at uh, the spotlight that was trying to shine at them. They pointed back to God, and God was glorified. Mark this. Mark the humility of Paul. The mind of Christ, my brothers and sisters, the mind of Christ is one of humility. We sang about it, or we'll sing about it in the, uh, uh, in the, in the last hymn. In Philippians 3, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It's humility. And that's the mind of the Apostle Paul. So this is the communion that happened. But second point, there is a concern that is raised. In spite of the joy, the gratitude, the, the gladness of having Paul there, shown by the, the brethren and the leaders in, in Jerusalem with the advance of the gospel among the Gentiles, there was a, a nagging concern. The concern is expressed now by, the, by, the, by, by James. He says that there are some reports that they heard, that they've been informed by, by some coming from those places, perhaps even recently, because, uh, uh, by the way, remember, it's the Feast of Pentecost. It's the time that all the Jews are coming from all over the, the Mediterranean uh, and from Asia and from further in, uh, uh, in the east. They are coming, gathering in Jerusalem, and those that are coming from, from Macedonia, from Achaia, from Asia in particular, are probably those Jews, unbelieving Jews, are coming with these reports. By the way, there's this, there's this fella that belongs to that sect of the way, the, the, the Christians. Uh, his name is Paul. He's been telling this to my brethren. He's been telling this to, to our brethren in, in those places. That, that's the report that's been uh, coming to Jerusalem. That there was uh, an anti uh, message or a, a contrary message from the Apostle Paul. Verse 20, you see, brother, how many myriads, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. The here, the, the, the Jewish, the, the brethren, uh, the Christian brethren in the Jerusalem church are more concerned about what the Christian Jews would think, were thinking. What was happening there? By the way, you remember that within the Jerusalem church there was this chasm that was there 20 years ago. And I'm sure it was still very much prevalent in these days uh, there. Um, this chasm between the Hellenists, the Greeks, and, the, and the, the Jews, the Jewish Christians. They didn't get along that nicely. That's why when you come to the letters of Paul, you find that so often the emphasis is on unity. No Jew nor Greek. Why? Because there was this tension. There was this wall of separation that was still in some way, although it had been torn down effectively in the cross, there was still some of this wall, uh, the, the rubble of this wall was still there. Let me just... But note how the, apostle, uh, the apostles said, note how James, the, lead, the elders of the, uh, of the Jerusalem church, deal with this. I don't think John Calvin is too, too uh, off the mark when he notes this. We must not rush, he says, to believe negative news, especially against those who have borne some testimony of their honesty and have given evidence of serving, of serving God faithfully. It's not that James has believed the reports. It's not that James is, has believed what, what, what he heard. But nonetheless, he knows that there is a danger here. That there is a concern. He sees a concerning element here. 
And while it is easy for us to draw those kind of uh, assessments from, the, the, mess, uh, from the, the gospel that Paul preached, from the teaching of Paul, a, a gospel that is free from the law, that was not at all what Paul preached. Paul said, yes, we are free from, from obeying the law now that Christ has come. The ceremonial and the, and the, the civil uh, law. But Paul was never, uh, never, as far as we can tell in his writings, never and, uh, said to Jews not to perform those things. He said that Greeks were, uh, that we are all free from those things, that Greeks should not, or the Gentiles should not be expected to do them. But he never actually went as far as to say that you shouldn't do them if you were a Jew. The ceremonial, the civil law has been rendered obsolete, has been fulfilled in Christ. However, the, the apostle never condemns Jewish circumcision or Jewish customs. He regards them, these things, as religiously indifferent, as adiaphora things. As long as you did not insist that those that became Christians from Gentilic backgrounds would have to become Jews first, would have to circumcise themselves before they became Christians. That was the whole matter of the controversy with the Judaizers for Paul. It wasn't so much that, that Jews, uh, Christian Jews were being uh, circumcised or they abstained from certain uh, foods. It was that they were demanding the, the Greeks and the Gentiles that believed to circumcise themselves. That being said, for them to become Jews first before they could become Christians. You need this to become a Christian. Or, if, or you are a Christian, but if you really, really, really want to be a, a, an outstanding Christian, you still need to circumcise yourself. And that, for Paul, was unacceptable. And he speaks clearly about it, specifically in the book of Galatians. He, he is adamant that what they're doing and what they're saying is contrary to the gospel. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, he says, avails anything but new creation. In the letter to the Corinthians, he says, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Note what he's saying here. Was anyone saved while he was a Jew? Let him not become a, a, a Gentile in his actions. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him, not become let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Being obedient to the, to the will of God. Performing the, the will of God in our lives. The Apostle Paul himself, he was aware of the freedom that he possessed in Christ with regard to Jewish traditions and customs. And yet, when it was convenient for the sake of the souls of others, he had Timothy circumcised. In fact, just a few chapters ago, we read about how he had a, a rich, uh, he performed the Nazarite vow. Paul speaks in his letter so often about this kind of matter, about having tolerance to the customs and the traditions. In Romans 14, 15, he speaks about abstinence to food, that the stronger brethren should be uh, careful to not cause the weaker brethren to stumble. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians, there's three chapters about this. In Romans 14, he also speaks about those who make distinctions of days. For some of the Jewish believers, they still held to some of these days as important. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, he speaks of this. Paul was never to, one to condemn the people of Israel and the law. This is just to emphasize that the report that 
the elders in Jerusalem were receiving was in fact just a lie. Romans chapter 9 verse 3, Paul says, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And he states the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So his practice was in harmony with his teaching. He had Timothy circumcised. He himself shaved his head at the end of his second missionary journey. He was willing to condescend to both Jews and Gentiles in order to win them for Christ. So the report is false. The concern is false, but nonetheless is there. And James is, uh, I think, very wise to note. So he comes up with a, a compromise. And why do I say compromise? And I stutter a little bit. Because whenever I hear the word compromise, and I suppose whenever you hear the word compromise, immediately negative attitudes come to mind. Compromises are negative. Compromises are, 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 um, are concessions that seem to forsake uh, principle. Most of the time when I use the word compromise, I'm saying it in a negative way. And that's so often the case uh, in our conversations. But when I say compromise here, it's not necessarily in a negative way. Take it as a neutral compromise, uh, a concession. Uh, I could have used the word concession. It starts with a C as well, just for the alliteration. But it's, a, but it's a, just compromise. Sometimes we compromise, and it's not a negative thing. Let's say uh, you, you're just moving house, and there's some things that need to be organized in the house, and your wife wants something there, and you want it there. And you compromise, and you say, let's put it in the middle. That's compromise, and it's not necessarily negative. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Not, not always compromising is a negative thing. You can make a compromise as a, a loving act, and it is positive. And the suggestion here is a suggestion of compromise, of a compromise, of a concession. The, the church in Jerusalem asks Paul to join the four Jewish Christians who had taken the Nazarite vow, uh, a, a ceremonial vow of consecrating themselves to God, to join them and to pay for their expenses, to associate with them. That would dispel the, the concern of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And in fact, it is so clear that this has nothing to do with salvation, that this has nothing to do with that, that James, the, the elder, even goes as far as to state, but this is just because of them. Uh, because concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should not, that they should only observe, that they shouldn't observe no such thing. There are, there are, they are clear in the graciousness of the gospel, that nothing can and should be added unto the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Paul acceded to the suggestion. And this is the great question. And this is the great divide in, among commentators and preachers and pastors throughout the, the history of the church. Was Paul wrong? As I said, I don't think he is. I'm not alone. But I'm also not in uh, uh, what they call it nowadays. Uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, the... The consensus of the major, the consensus, anyone. There is no consensus here. For instance, the G. Campbell Morgan, he was quite strong and adamant, saying that Paul was a hypocrite. Even goes as far as James Montgomery Boyce, a, a wonderful uh, expositor of God's word. He said, Paul compromised the gospel. Let me read you his words. Paul's error is worse than hypocrisy, though it was that too. 
He was a compromise of the gospel. The same apostle who had written so many New Testament books, the man who had argued so forcefully that we are saved by Jesus Christ alone, was about to go to the Jewish temple and in the presence of the very priest who had crucified the Lord, there participate with others in a sacrifice of an animal that was meant to be an atonement for sin. That is, he was about to turn his back on the only sufficient sacrifice for Christ. And it's hard to argue with James Boyce, isn't it? Another commentator, he says, Paul, uh, with regards to the fact that Paul then goes, uh, gets in prison, he says, Paul was reaping what he sowed. He should have listened to the pleas of his brethren in Tyre and Caesarea and, in, and to not come to Jerusalem. When we walk out of accord with the will of God, and this is a Reformed commentator, it's not some kind of weird prosperity gospel commentator, this is a, a Reformed man, which I dearly respect. This is what you expect. You can expect. Surely, he goes on to say, Paul's actions would constitute a flagrant, or would constitute a flagrant breach of principle. It would be the case, do what I say, not a, what I do. So was it a mistake? Was Paul wrong? Did he compromise? I don't believe so. Otherwise we would have clear sense of it. The Spirit would have not left us with this hanging over our heads. The, the, the argument that Paul would make is that his imposition against circumcision was when they imposed, when they imposed this on, Jewish, on Gentile believers, on Christians who were not from a Jewish background. His opposition was against imposing these ceremonial laws upon the Jews, upon the, Jews, upon the Gentile believers, as if keeping them were necessary for salvation. As a Jew, he himself was willing to submit to these things out of culture and out of practice and out of love for his brethren. Look at the words that Paul speaks to Corinthians. And I don't know if you're persuaded by what I'm saying, but look at what Paul says. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more, uh, the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those that are without law, that is the, the Gentiles, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Who are the weak here? They are those who are legalists and say, I became a Jew to win Jews. It's not that he sacrificed the truth. It was a question of, uh, of cultural adaptation. I moved into what they were so that I could win them. I don't think this is compromise in the negative sense. He wasn't doing it out of fear, out of, out of, out of uh, uh, shyness. He was doing it out of love. You see, sometimes we confuse, um, many times compromising or making concessions is weakness. But I would argue that in the, in the case of the Apostle Paul here, he's not being weak, he's being strong. It's denoting his strength. The same grace that gave the Gentiles the freedom to abstain also gave the Jews the freedom to observe their customs. All that God asked of them was to accept one another without creating problems or divisions. So this is not a negative uh, compromise in making these concessions. 
a commentator says this, and I find it uh, very compelling. He says, a truly emancipated spirit, that is, a truly freed uh, spirit, like that of Paul, is not enslaved to its emancipation, is not enslaved to the freedom that it was given. But then we have the consequence, and I will be brief here. I don't want to take much more time. He goes into the temple. Again, there is a lie there. They say that uh, he brought uh, they, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews identify him. Uh, they point him out. They single him out in the crowd. The, the crowd gathers. They are in tumult. They are. They rise together. They are. They are livid. Uh, there is a lie about uh, Trophimus being in the in the temple, which is not true. Um, and they they start beating him up. And then the Romans hear this. They come out of the garrison. Uh, they. They are concerned about upholding the emperor's peace. Uh, so they, they, they find that the, the easiest way to do that, same thing in our day, if there is a riot somewhere in Oxford Street because of a, of a, a street preacher and people are starting to gather around him and, and being rioters. So often the, the, the policy of the police is to take the, the, the cause of the disturbance not so much that he's wrong, they're not arresting him, but it's like, take him out, maintain the, queen's, the king's peace. In, in a sense, that might be what was happening here, although we'll, we'll speak a little bit more about it next week or in a couple of weeks when we come back to Acts. But what we see is that, yes, the prophetic warnings were, in fact, true. They were fulfilled And the intervention of, of the Roman centurion, Claudius, we, we read his name later in the, in the book of Acts, uh, saved Paul's life. Which is interesting, and we we'll, we'll, might talk about this next week. It's interesting that, again, the Roman authorities are not presented in a bad light in the book of Acts. There's reasons for this. But. So what... What can we learn from the events we are considering? I think we've learned quite a bit, but how can we apply this in our own lives? Number one, the promotion of God's kingdom in this world is a divine work. I think there is no argument. We as believers, we need to be clear that it's not our work. It's God working through us. It's us working in the might of the Lord. It is us... Uh, being instruments in God's hands. It's all His work. And that's, and that's so encouraging. Because if it was our work, as we go out into the streets of this district, of this city, if it was up to us and down to us to save people, no one would be saved, would they? So we'd encourage it. Us should encourage us to proclaim the gospel of Christ with diligence, with faithfulness, with uh, unwavering uh, commitment, with no comp negative compromise, uh, because we know that's Him who makes His word effective. That the outward call that we perform is accompanied or needs to be accompanied by the effectual call of the Spirit that He alone can do and will do. That He alone can open the, uh, the hearts of the hearers to the gospel, just like He did with Lydia in Philippi. But this passage also speaks to us about the power and the danger of human traditions. And I... Religion, tr religious traditions in themselves are not bad or harmful in as much as they are uh, outworkings of the principles of Scripture. But so often, they can be a hindrance. They can hinder the believer from uh, achieving or reaching an adequate understanding of the gospel. 
They can lead whole congregations into error. Because of the, these mistaken traditions, because of their lack of understanding uh, of, of what God was doing, instead of glorifying God, like the elders of the Christian church in Jerusalem did, the Jewish unbelievers, the, Jew, the, the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem, did precisely the opposite. They saw, because of their tradition, because they held to their tradition so strongly, just like the Thessalonians uh, uh, Jews in, the, in Paul's second missionary journey, they, they were adamant that their traditions cannot be wrong. And they, and they did one of the most atrocious things in the history of, of mankind. So let us ask the Lord for wisdom to discern the content, the timing, the manner, the reason, the motivation, the biblical emphasis or the biblical foundation of our traditions. There's the matter of condescensions, of positive compromises that needs to be addressed, that needs to be meditated upon. There is ample uh, scope for considering this further. We cannot and we should not compromise on the things of Scripture. Scripture is God's breathed word. We cannot compromise on the expense of truth as liberal churches do, as, for instance, the Anglican Church did recently with, with the, the marriage uh, situation, or blessing, they call it. They compromised there, didn't they? It's like, oh, well, let's not call it marriage. Let's call it, com let's call it just blessing their union, as if that makes any difference. They managed to estrange both the, the more conservatives and the liberals. No one was happy with that. That's, that's, that's a, and that's a, a task. Um, I think when we, when we consider this, we need to ask the Lord for, again, wisdom to discern what are the things that we are holding too dear to our hearts that, uh, that we use as shibboleths that actually are not mandated in Scripture, that actually there is freedom for believers to disagree on. And finally, I'll finish where I started with uh, the attitude of Paul. The attitude of Paul encourage, uh, encourages us to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the love of Christ, of his gospel, of his kingdom, of his church. Not being concerned about the circumstances that might come out of it, but trusting him and his will to uphold us. We should not be afraid or turn away from difficulties or difficult decisions or tribulations. God does not call us to, to, to be those who, who anxiously try to uh, foresee every possible outcome before we make a decision, does he? God calls us to be faithful with our decision-making and leave the consequences to him. God calls us to make the right choices for the right reasons, to please him, to glorify him. And whatever happens with those decisions, whether we suffer, whether we be at a loss for a season, it's up to him. And that takes humility. That takes humility. It is the pride of the heart 
that, that tries to foresee everything as if we can, as if we have the foresight of, of things and that we have the mental capacity of seeing everything that will happen. If I only take the, this step, if I take this job, if I, if, I, if I go out to this meeting, if I accept this offer, if only we, we had, that is pride when we try to do that. What God calls us to have is humility, to use the light that has been given to us in his scripture to make the, the, the decisions that are most glorifying to him in that moment and to leave the consequences to him, to be faithful in the now, in the present, and to leave the future in his hands. Humility is what we need. J.C. Ryle, the bishop, he said uh, that humility is the very first letter of the alphabet of Christianity. And that's what we need. Paul was arrested, as was prophesied, but in God's sovereign providence, he turned that uh, bitter providence into a, a wonderful, sweet, smelling aroma of life unto life to many. As Paul is going to be taken from Jerusalem to Rome, many, many, many will hear of the good news of the gospel. He will be afforded the opportunity to stand before governors and those in authority because he submitted, because he was humble to trust the Lord, even in the midst or in the, in the, In the presence of potential suffering. Submission to biblical truths and principles. And the fulfillment of our calling. Does not guarantee us a quiet life does it? But it does guarantee. The approval. And the well pleasing. Of our Lord. Who one day. He will be the one that tells us. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your